we had a very interesting clipping that was sent in to me from one of our brethren. We have brethren who send me very helpful clippings from time to time. This is from USA Today. It's called A Drought for the Ages from Denver, Colorado. Drought, a fixture in much of the West for nearly a decade, now covers more than one-third of the continental USA and it's spreading. As summer starts, half the nation is either abnormally dry or an outright drought for prolonged lack of rain that could lead to water shortages, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. Now, this is not from a religious magazine, but from the USA Today newspaper. A weekly uh, welcome rainfall last weekend from Tropical Storm Barry brought short-term relief to parts of fire-scorched southeast, but up to 50 inches of rain is needed to end the drought there. 50 inches of rain. That's a lot of rain. And this is the driest spring in the southeast, listens, since record-keeping began in 1895. So you have to go way back over a 100 years to find a spring as dry as this spring, according to the National Climatic Data Center. California and Nevada just recorded their driest June to May period since 1924. So as you see, brethren, that's going back about 83 years, I guess that would be. And a lack of rain in the West could make this an especially risky summer for wildfires. Well, on television, I think you've already seen the wildfires in Southern California and elsewhere already breaking out. So we do need to realize that these things are beginning to happen. Now, this may not be the final drought, but it could be. And it certainly could be a preparatory drought leading into the very final drought because these things are beginning to happen, as we've announced before, most of the nation of Australia has been suffering horribly from that. And recently they've had floods. And I think you know the prophecies back there in Amos and Micah. I think it's Micah that indicates there'll be alternating, alternating drought and floods. Too much rain in one area, too little rain in other areas. And sometimes when the rain does come, when there's been a drought, it comes so hard that it washes away the topsoil and in a sense does more harm than good, if you follow me. So these things certainly are happening, and we need to think about it. I think prophetic events are definitely speeding up. I read just the other day again in a magazine, a major, I think it was Time magazine, that President Bush is the most hated president in American history among other nations. And that reflects on us, of course. You know, it's not all his fault in the sense he's inherited quite a situation. He's been trying to straighten out things in a certain way, but somehow he's come in there just straight at him like a Sherman tank, and it has really hurt and upset a lot of these other nations. Why are these things happening? Why are we having some of the worst drought in human history beginning to hit us? And why are we a hated nation in so many nations of the world today? When you understand it, brethren, I think you and the church do, but I hope all of your brethren around the world meditate on this. The real answer is because we as a nation, are going down in our morals and our obedience to God, and we're going down in the sense that we are turning away from God in almost every possible way, and we're despising God's laws, despising God's statutes. And as I've read you so many times recently from Leviticus chapter 26, I won't repeat that except refer to it, when he says when you despise those things, then he says, I'll bring terror on you. And the first thing we've had recently, in a big way, were the terrorist attacks. We have increasing abortions, and they're continuing right on. One of the greatest holocausts in the history of the earth, making Hitler's holocaust seem very small by comparison. Murdering all these little children. 
There have been over 45 million abortions in the United States since Roe versus Wade. Can you imagine that? Just think about that. That's about seven and a half times as many as were killed, or the Jews were killed at least, in Hitler's Holocaust. Yet we just take it for granted. Abortions, murdering little children. We have homosexuality greatly increasing. And in parts of our nations, in some states, and up in Canada, it's against the law to speak out against them if you're not very careful how you do it. Or they will literally put you in jail or fine you. We have that kind of situation increasing where we have to be very careful what we say about abortion, very careful what we say about these people that pervert God's gift of sex, pervert it terribly, and bring great sorrow on themselves and on the entire society. But it's becoming illegal to actually speak out and to lift up your voice like a trumpet like God tells us to do. They're making it illegal to do that in the society we're living in today. And, of course, we have the murder rate has just gone up, as you know, in the major cities. Sex clubs, homosexual different groupings and clubs, wild drinking and drug use is increasing all over as people despise the God of the Bible and the way they live, the way they talk, the way they act. Brethren, we and our children, and most of us have children who are still in their perhaps 20s or teens. Many of you younger ones have even young children. We're in a battle more than we realize. And sometimes we take it for granted. But we are in a battle against evil spirits. And God makes that very, very plain. There is a spirit world around us right now, and we're not always conscious of that. We need to realize this, and we need to act. We need to realize this, and we need to fight. As Paul talks about fighting, the good fight of faith. And we need to realize we really are in a battle. It's not some figure of speech. It is really going on day by day and hour by hour. In Ephesians, the second chapter, the Apostle Paul was guided by God to tell us in verse 2 or chapter 2, verse 1, Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, And you, talking to the Christians there, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. How were they dead in trespasses and sins? Of course, in all kinds of ways, but as you know, Ephesus was the center of sex worship. Diana of the Ephesians, the great goddess of sex and fertility and that kind of thing. They had horrible practices going on, which God hated. And these people grew up right in the shadow of the temple of Diana, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And again, brethren, we read this, and I know all of you read it from time to time, or you hear it at least, if you're not studying your Bible. The prince of the power, well, the prince of the power of the air. So whatever, we've heard that before. I know we've heard that before, but that is a reality. He is the invisible spirit that is trying to influence your mind. And he is in a battle for your mind, your attitude, your soul, if you would, and the mind and heart of your children and the mind and heart of our nation. And he's got our nation as a whole pretty much under his control right now, very frankly, much more than people realize. The prince of the power of this earth's atmosphere, the spirit, an invisible spirit being who now works. He's busy. He never gets tired. He never gets run down. He keeps at it. The spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, not just the sons who lack faith, 
The Protestants say, just believe in Jesus and everything will be fine. Yes, you should believe in Jesus, but you'd better believe in the right Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus of the Bible tells you to obey God. It's a matter of obeying or not obeying. Faith without works is dead. And you have to learn to do what God says. And many of us even in the church don't do that. We have all kinds of young people that get drunk or they take drugs or they get involved in sex acts of various sorts. Different ones in the church are watering this down and watering that down. And God is not pleased with that. And He's not going to bless us individually or bless us as a church unless we really grow and really come out of all that and become people of God. People who fear God and keep His commandments. So He's the Spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. Among also we all once conducted ourselves, Paul writes, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we once got into that, Paul says, and we have to come clear out of it. But Satan is the one who stirs it up. Now turn on over to chapter 6. Most of you again know this scripture. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. God's might. We don't have very much power. And if you don't know it now, someday you will realize that how weak you are and how easy it is to mess your mind up and to get you weak or to get you bitter or to turn you aside from the great God who gives you life and breath. Apart from God, you don't have much power. I don't have much power. None of us do. So you need the power of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the stratagems, the schemings of Satan the devil. He is not stupid. He is very, very clever. He is the God of this age. He has a whole bunch of churches out here who say, just love the Lord, and yet they will not obey His commandments. They will not do what He says. As you know, the Episcopalians just recently uh, voted, which they should not do in the first place. They voted in this woman, uh, Archbishop Catherine Joforts, I think, or whatever her name is. And, of course, she believes in lesbianism. She believes in homosexuality and the whole bit. She doesn't think the Bible is the true guide at all. And you can read quotes about her, about how she says, well, we need to be more broad-minded. And she makes statements like that. She invents her own religion, in my opinion, as she goes along. She doesn't fear God. She certainly doesn't fear the God of the Bible. But they've elected her the leader of the Episcopal Church of the United States of America, several million people. That's what we're getting into in our so-called Christianity today. Increasing numbers of Methodists and, of course, Presbyterians and other major fellowships are getting into that kind of thing as well. If you read the newspapers, you know that. That's happening all through so-called Christianity today, right here, right down the street from us. Except we're in a more conservative community in one way, and yet we have the gay pride parade right here in Charlotte from time to time. We're not as conservative as we were 20 or 30 years ago right here. And it's getting pretty bad right here when you really understand what's going on. But God tells us, He warns us about this, that we're to put on the whole armor of God against the stratagems, the terrible schemes of Satan. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Again, brethren, we're not fighting just flesh and blood. We're fighting something invisible and we have to understand and recognize there are demon spirits trying to get at your mind. 
we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. They're rulers against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, not just part of it, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your waist girded with truth. What is the truth? Of course, the key thing is the Bible. People invent their own. This is the way I look at it. This is what I think. Well, you shouldn't care what I think, frankly, or what Mr. Ames thinks or Dr. Winnett or anyone else. What we think as a human being is not that important. It really isn't. What is important is what does this book clearly say? And can we show you from the Bible over and over that the Bible says you shall keep the seventh day, not just any day. It is holy time. You shall not commit adultery at all under any circumstances, period. You should not commit fornication at all under any circumstances, period. You should not murder at all under any circumstances, period. You see what I mean? So the Bible makes those things very clear. Very clear if you read it in the Bible and it spells it out if you're willing to hear. And of course you do hear it here in the church. I know that. But I want us to be awakened and to be more on guard against this force that's coming at us. We don't wrestle normal human beings in normal flesh. We wrestle wicked spirits in high places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Having girt your waist with truth, which is the Bible. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, what covers your heart. Righteousness, that's God's commandments. Having shod your feet, which way do you walk? What are you busy in? With the gospel of peace. Sometimes it's called the gospel of the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's called the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes the gospel of grace. Here it's called the gospel of peace. It's a good news about all these things. All certainly part of the gospel of the kingdom of God. But we're to be busy doing that work, preaching that message of a time of real peace under God's government in a very few years. Above all, taking the shield of faith. You see, if you don't have faith in God and if you have not really proved right down to your toenails that this book is inspired of God, I challenge you to do that, my brethren. I'm just talking to you here. A lot of you here haven't done that thoroughly, I'm sure. I just know human nature. I wasn't in the church the last three months. I've been in the church 50, almost 58 years now. So I've seen people. I've seen leading evangelists in the church of God. I won't say name them, but many of them. You know, Mr. Pyle remembers, Mr. Pardee remembers. Leading evangelists of Jesus Christ. Big shots. I've seen them come and go. Come and go. And turn away from the truth. Over vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. So don't think that you're immune. I'm not immune. Nobody's immune. So we have to really prove that this is the inspired revelation from God. The mind of God in print. And then prove to ourselves that God's in the Bible says what He means and means what He says. And let the Bible interpret the Bible, the natural revelation of what God says over and over. Not try to read our ideas into the Bible, but just clear examples of what Jesus actually did do, what the early apostles actually did do in their lives. That shows what Christianity did. It's not some mystery. The Protestants have invented this idea of grace, you know, and they have all these clever arguments about somehow, some way. Uh, Paul came along and did away with all the teachings of Christ almost and you don't have to obey God. He said if you keep, if you love God, keep the commandments and so on. He said you don't have to do that. 
But you look at the clear examples of what Jesus said and actually what he did and what the apostles did and what the early church did do. It's not a mystery at all. But you have to be willing to do that and to fight against these wicked spirits. So stand, therefore, gird your waist, your abdomen parts where your drives for food and sex and liquor reside. Is sex evil? No. But you're to guide that according to what? The truth. The truth tells you how to use sex, how to use liquor, how to use food according to God's Word. And then have the breastplate of God's commandments and be busy in the work and the gospel. Above all, taking the shield of faith because Satan will try to put doubts in your mind. You'll say, well, these guys aren't perfect. Or somebody made a mistake. Or I don't like this minister. Or I don't like this brother offended me in some way. So what? So what? I'm sure that the Apostle John, I mean, Paul offended a lot of people when you read about his life. He was very much of a uh, held for leather, if I may use that expression. Some of you might be offended at me saying that, but that's the kind of guy he was. He came right at him. Moses came right at them, and they didn't like him. They didn't like Aaron. They got they picked up stones to stone them to death on two or three occasions. To stone Moses, the great man of God, who was a type of Christ. He said, well, they wouldn't do that to Jesus. And when I asked that, of course, now you know what I mean. Of course they would. They did. They tried to throw him down off the brow of this big bluff the very first sermon he gave there on the synagogue. They tried to kill him the first thing. Then they tried to kill him again and again, and finally they did kill him, crucify him, when it was God's time, but not until God's time. So don't let little things offend you. That's such an easy pitfall to fall into if you let yourself. Let some little tiny thing get you bugged and turn you away from the great God of creation, the God of the Bible. Take the shield of faith that you trust in God and you know He's there and you know His Word is inspired and that His way is right. You know that it says He is the living head of the church of God. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He will guide things over all. And learn to have faith in that and you'll see it works out. When I was sent into exile in England and my daughter broke down and cried. She's not here, but uh, one of the guys that knew about it came over and said, well, my dad hates your dad. That's why you're being sent away. And I lived, whoo, she came over bawling and said, said, I know why we're being sent to England. She was all crying and shaking. I said, well, it's all right. Don't worry about that. that may be one reason. God will guide it for good. And we went over and had a good time and worked out all right. The kids had an opportunity to have a little better exposure to British culture and trips to the continent. And so we learned from it, even though we were seeming sent away to get me away from someone that I knew too much about. Later on, I was sent into exile in Hawaii, and that hurt a lot. Here I'd just worked myself to death almost. I could use a longer, stronger expression to try to help hold the church together, and my reward was being sent into exile for eight and a half months. And almost every Sunday, my wife and I and little Rebecca in their station wagon, we'd circle the island once, once every week, I mean. On Sunday, we'd have time because she had school the other days. And we'd go around the island. I remember Cheryl, I'd stop and say, well, that's where they are back there. We'd come to the, to the eastern part of Oahu and we'd look back and I would picture them back in Pasadena and wore out here right after I'd worked and worked and worked and prayed and fasted and asked God to hold the church together and I got sent off. I had to say, God will take care of it. And he did take care of it finally. 
Was I in a 100% perfect attitude all the time out there? No! <laughs> no, but I didn't do anything about it. When I got in a bad attitude, I tried to pray and fast all the harder somehow and got over it, so I didn't turn aside. I knew Mr. Armstrong was God's servant. I knew he was getting older. I knew that he was taken advantage of by very clever men around him and that it would work out in the end. And it did. It did work out. But at any rate, uh, you have to understand those things. Take the shield of faith that God is alive and He's in charge and Christ is in charge with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. If you have that faith, you see, that's something out there from you to keep those darts from coming right into your heart or in your bloodstream and start spreading that poison. What is the poison? The poison of doubt, the poison of bitterness. I'm bitter against the ministers, therefore I'm bitter against God or the disillusionment or all these other things that come in. If Satan puts that kind of stuff in your bloodstream, spiritually speaking, and he can sure do it. But if you have faith, it can block that stuff off. You have the shield of faith using that analogy with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of who? The wicked one. Again, we're fighting a battle ultimately against Satan and his demons. Wicked spirits in high places. The wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation. God's Holy Spirit which guards your mind up in your head. That's where you have the helmet. And the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon you have to fight back, which is the Word of God. You know this Bible. You study this Bible. You feed on this Bible. So you can take that sword, say no, and hack this and hack this wrong idea in two if you understand the Bible. Praying always. And boy, we need to do that. With all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Supplication means continual prayer and humility. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, Paul writes, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. The mystery that God is reproducing Himself. Man doesn't understand that. He doesn't know why he's here. That awesome reason that our Father in heaven has given, made this beautiful earth and this vast universe, and that He's made all of us the sons and daughters of men in His image to someday be His full sons. That's the mystery of life. And that He gave His Son Jesus Christ to die for us, to pour out His blood on the cross to pay for our sins. And He gave His body to be beaten and torn in that scourging, that by His stripes we were healed as I preached last Sabbath. And don't ever forget that part and that part of the Passover ceremony when you take that broken bread to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. If I were put in chains down in the jail here somewhere or Mr. Ames or one of us, I imagine some of the bread, well, he got it what he deserved. Right? I don't like him or this or that. Human beings are human beings. Some of them probably didn't like Paul either. But he was put in jail. And how many years did he spend in jail? Most of you know. About five years of his ministry was spent in prison in one way or the other. Two years in Rome the first time, and then another, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, Caesarea, and then two years in Rome, and then the months 
in between in the prison ship going to Rome, where he was still a prisoner in a chain with a Roman soldier guarding him, and then the time even after he was two years in Rome, before he got left, got out, and then the final next time he was in Rome at the end, plus other individual prisoners. So it must have added up to at least four and a half or five years altogether. The servant of God in prison. Do you give up and quit? Paul didn't give up and quit. He had a ringing, radiant faith that came right through in his letters, many of which he wrote from prison when he had big ankle bracelets around here, big, you know, iron things, uh, I don't know what they'd call them, shackles around his ankles and a chain between so he couldn't run off. And he didn't break down and cry and scream like uh, Paris did, I guess, and you've not heard of her <laughs> on the TV last night, the news. They even had it on BBC, you know, she was sent back to jail. Oh, she said, Daddy, Mommy, I'm going to have to be just like anyone else and pay for my sins. Wow. <laughs> that was cute. Anyway, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And uh, Christ, uh, Paul went through that again and again for years, and he did not give up and quit. But brethren, it would be so easy for some of us to turn aside. So we have to understand that and that we are surrounded, absolutely surrounded by a spirit world and that that spirit world, Satan and his demons are trying to get at us, disorient us, discourage us, put doubt in our mind, put bitterness in our mind, overthrow us individually. And boy, if he could overthrow the very work of God at the time of the end, what a tremendous victory that would be. You see, you think about it what Satan would love to do. Jesus Christ was constantly aware of this, brethren. I think you know that. Jesus Christ was terribly aware of it at the very beginning of His ministry. Satan came right at Him. And you read that back in Matthew 4. I'm not turning there, but you know how, how Satan tried to tempt Christ three times in a row, and, and Christ had to resist that. And then later on, at the very end of His ministry, are three times, and I thought it would be interesting and perhaps helpful to read these, where he talks about Satan and how real he was. Back in uh, John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter uh, 12 and verse 30, a voice had just come, and uh, Jesus said in verse 30, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler, or the prince, as the King James has it, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's saying Satan, obviously, is the ruler of this world. Did Christ, the Son of God, know that? Of course he did. Satan is the ruler of this world. As Paul said later, as we read in Ephesians 2. Then you read it again in John 13. John chapter 13 and verse 27. He says there... Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Well, that was the direct statement, but I wanted to read this too, right? As Jesus was, was being turned over to uh, the Romans to crucify, Satan directly, and God's not kidding, he meant that Satan entered Judas, possessed him, and then he turned on Christ. He was fighting that spirit battle. Uh, he knew that. And then you turn over. The next scripture is chapter 15. This is, of course, John 15. And verse, uh, let me get the right one here. John 15 and verse uh, 
I'm sorry, it's John 14 and verse 30. Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. This ruler of this world, Jesus said, has nothing in me. Obviously, it was Satan the devil. He doesn't have anything to do with Christ, and Christ has nothing to do with him. And then you go to chapter 16, chapter 16 now, in verse 11, and here he's talking about how uh, when the Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, verse 11, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And again, Satan the devil, of course, implicitly indicated again here as the ruler of this world. Another very interesting thing that often strikes me when I read it, and we don't talk about it a lot at Passover time, but you know when they came to grab Christ and take Him, remember back in John 18, when Jesus had just finished that wonderful prayer in chapter 17, John 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He went over the brook Kidron and into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas knew the place. Then Judas, verse 3, having received the detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. Christ was a man of the flesh. He'd been born of the Virgin Mary. He knew what was about to happen to him. It was a horrible, slow, agonizing beating and death. But he didn't run. He went forward. He says, who are you looking for, fellas? He had total confidence in God that God would help him do what he had to do and God would be with him. So he went forward and said, who do you, who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus said, I am. And he used the expression in the Greek or Aramaic language, which is the parallel expression to that used back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. If they ask you who I am, tell them I am that I am, the self-existent one, the great God, the ever-living one, the eternal, as Mr. Armstrong often translated it. I am. And when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's kind of interesting. There's a spirit war going on there. And undoubtedly Christ, I mean, God encouraged Jesus. Maybe Jesus didn't know that would happen. I don't know. But somehow he said, I am. And then this whole bunch of soldiers getting ready to grab it. Smash! They fall backwards to the ground of the power of Satan. And yet they don't know why. And they get up perhaps confused and get their act together. And I don't know what they were thinking. And then they came and take him anyway. Must have encouraged the disciples. Although they ran away and they were all scared. And Peter denied him. Cursed three times and denied him. Or cursed and denied him three times, I mean. But it was interesting. The power of God occasionally showed forth even when Jesus was in trouble. And when we get in trouble, every now and then Christ will give us some unusual encouragement even during a time of terrible trial and trouble. And I won't try to go through the examples when I've had that happen, but I have had that happen. Times of terrible trial or something, all of a sudden, something unusual happens once in a while where God shows you, I don't mean some little incident or coincidence, but something unusual, spiritual, that God shows you, I am with you. Don't worry. It's going to be all right. Going back to Daniel now, chapter uh, 10, brethren. Daniel, if you would. And let's turn to chapter 10 here of the book of Daniel, this wonderful prophecy. I wanted to look here for the T. Here it is. This uh 
particular podium we have over here, the uh, area underneath is a little more narrow. Anyway, turn to chapter 10, and you notice here, Paul or John or Daniel writes, very along here, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. God is giving him, of course, a tremendous uh, prophecy about the time of the end. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days... I, Daniel, was mourning. So here he was, apparently praying, perhaps fasting, and mourning for three full weeks. What was he doing? I think most of you know he was a servant of God. He must have been praying fervently, and part of that time he was fasting. I ate no pleasant food, so it doesn't mean he didn't eat anything at all, but no doubt part of the time he was fasting nor did I anoint myself till three whole weeks were fulfilled. What was he doing? He was seeking God. That's what he was obviously doing. Mourning, praying, and part of the time, perhaps even completely fasting and seeking God. God, help me understand. I want to know. And so God did guide him and give him this tremendous vision that is revealed over the next three chapters. And it was a wonderful time. And so then a little later... He was left alone uh, when he saw this vision. No strength remained in me. Verse 8, And then suddenly a hand touched me. Verse 10, Which made me tremble. And he said, Obviously an angel of God, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word, I stood trembling. Then he said, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, see, he began to seek God. Help me understand. The temple is burned. We're in captivity off in the city of Babylon. Things are going bad. What's wrong? And so Daniel began to seek God. From the first day you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. From that very first time, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. God, of course, heard right away. He was able to understand and began to have mercy on Daniel right away, not weeks later. He began to intervene. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me three weeks. Here is a demon prince, a false angel, fighting a spirit battle. There are demons behind the Gentile kingdoms of this world. And you know, when the average American tourist, let's say a woman, goes over to Thailand or India or something, and I've heard them, and you've probably, some of you heard them or read about it. Oh, Gertrude, isn't that, isn't that interesting? This nice statue of Buddha, it's kind of pretty, or this or that, something else. No, it's not pretty. It's a terrible abomination picturing a false god that is destroying the lives of those people. But so many Americans, oh, all religions are alike and they have their way to approach God and we have our ways to approach God and is it all interesting? No, it's an abomination. And God's people were told in ancient times to go and get a sledgehammer and crush those idols. And in a few years, we're going to do the same thing. So a hand touched me, O Daniel, great beloved, understand the words 
And he said, from the first day you set your heart to understand, your words were heard, and this, this great angel withstood uh, me 21 days. And so a false demon had brought off God's true angel. And one of the chief princes came to help me, Michael, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So Michael, the archangel, or we know he was one of the three cherubs. You know, there were three super archangels, as Mr. Armstrong called them, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And Michael was one of those. Gabriel was the other. Michael seems to have been more of the angel watching over Israel. And as you read about Gabriel, he was more one that would give special spiritual messages as he did at the time of Jesus. And Lucifer originally meant light bringer, loose, you know, on the... Latin languages means light, bringer of light. He turned aside from God. His name was then chained to Satan, which means enemy or adversary. He took one-third of the angels with him. Apparently the entire third. And again, that's scary. How many of his angels did Lucifer deceive? Virtually all of them. Can Lucifer deceive you? Can Lucifer deceive me? Don't think that you stand. Take heed lest you fall. Paul warns us. We've got to really understand that because we're dealing with powerful spirit beings that can get our minds all messed up. So anyway, so he came to help me for I'd been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So here was a righteous angel trying to get through to Daniel with this message. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. A tremendous message about the Messiah, the building of the temple, and all those things he talked about. For the vision refers to many more days to come. Then a couple other verses. And then he says in verse 18, Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me, strengthened me, said, O man, greatly beloved. And sometimes we are greatly beloved, but we don't know it as much as perhaps we should. Some of you may be greatly beloved of God. I don't know that. But I think many of you are. If you honestly love God, serve God, or trying hard, and Daniel was remarkably close to God, of course. We're not that way, most of us. But you who are greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. And I say that to all of you and you brethren around the world. When these things come on us as a church, and they are going to come, and the tribulation is going to come, and the trials and the tests are going to come, be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. A spirit battle going on behind the scenes. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come, another pagan nation. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. So that great archangel was sent by God to help him break through these other angelic hosts and to do what he had to do. A spirit war sometimes is going on behind the scenes that we are not always fully aware of, brethren. And it is important that we understand that and realize the times we're living in and how those things are going to get even worse, much, much worse, much more profound at the time of the end. And you will perhaps see the result of it sometime, but not always the battle because it's a spirit battle. So behind the scenes, Satan is trying to stir up the forces of evil. He will try to destroy uh, modern Israel, particularly the British-descended and American peoples. 
And he will try to destroy and hurt and divide and confuse spiritual Israel, God's church. And whichever aspect of God's church is doing the work more powerfully, where would Satan strike the most? He will try to get at us if he can and if we let him. If we do the work more powerfully, the madder he gets, the more he will try to come at us. And we need to really grasp that fact. There is a real devil and we are in a spirit battle. Please understand, it is serious. And I hope that we can understand. So he will try to come after spiritual Israel, of course, the church. Many of you have heard me quote in my articles and sometimes in sermons from this book for the last several years, The Principality and Power of Europe by Adrian Hilton. We had this young man who's been offered as a candidate for parliament, a very brilliant young man from Britain, and we had him even lecture to our ministers in the conference last spring. But at any rate, he writes here on page 41 of the newer edition. Uh, I, I started to bring mine and had to run back there. Monica helped me find one that's brand new. I think it's the newer edition where it's in a different page, but I found what I wanted here. He says uh, on page 40, 141, 141, the Bible is clear that there is no rest for Christians from the battles against the spiritual principalities and powers which oppose the purposes of God. The king of adversaries, Satan, governs demon princes who have dominion over specified geographical areas. You see, he puts it very well. A principality is precisely that an area governed by a prince. In Daniel 10, there is a mention of the prince of Persia, and a little later, the prince of Greece. Ezekiel 27 talks about the ruler of Tyre, who seems to reflect the attributes of Satan himself, and one of God's archangels, Michael, is called the prince of Israel, Daniel 12, verse 1. It is possible that Satan has his trusted princes over all the governments of this world. Maybe Adrian Hilton running for parliament does like to say it is, is it absolutely is. He says it's possible. <laughs> and uh, obviously Satan does, and especially the Gentile kingdoms. He does do that, and the Bible indicates that. These princes are responsible to him for carrying out his will in those governments. He seeks to hinder God's plan in the fulfillment of prophecy regarding world kingdoms. Since Michael is named as Prince of Israel, it's clear that God has his trusted angels to carry out his will concerning what he's ordained for the kingdoms of this world. And these opposing forces, in other words, Satan's angels, Satan's demons, are even now locked in an immense war in the heavenlies. On this basis, all wars lost or won on earth, get it, are congruous with wars which are lost or won by these heavenly armies. In other words, God may intervene and guide the wing this way and that way according to His will. Now, I don't believe it means all wars, frankly. God may not need to intervene or even bother to intervene. He's kept left hands off for 6,000 years, as Mr. Armstrong said. But when He needs to, He does intervene. And I've told you a number of times, and many of us have, about how we know God intervened and gave us the victory, as we know, in the Second World War. All kinds of interesting and very unusual things happen. And we just accidentally bombed the German atomic installation at Capena Munda. We didn't know that it was an atomic installation until after the war. And suddenly we realized that is exactly where they had their atomic plant and they were just about ready. And we bombed them out so they couldn't attack us. Instead of us blasting the Japanese, what if the Germans had bombed New York and blown it to pieces? That might have been the end of the war right there. 
Unusual things happen like that again and again. I've told you about how just after the miracle of the calm waters, when God rescued the prime part of the British army, about 340,000 crack troops, you know, from Dunkirk, the bells of the churches all over Britain were tolling, and the churches were packed out, as these men have told me who were there. That's the last time, he said, they were ever packed out. The people knew that God had intervened, and there were tears in their eyes. And I've had older men tell me that. It's very inspiring when you hear it from someone who was there. They knew at that time God intervened, and God helped Britain and America win that war. And that was the last major war we have won. But at any rate, it's God who guides these things, and He plans the rise and fall of kingdoms, and Satan who seeks to confound those plans. Such demon princes may also influence national characteristics. These could be examined globally, but the principal concern here is Europe. And he goes on to describe the nature of the Germanic peoples and other things like that and other going on, and that's not our point at this time. But God does intervene, and God does allow Satan to have armies, and God does allow Satan to have demons guiding the affairs. And brethren, over the next several years, as I have said, and I don't mean the next two or three years necessarily, I've said several, perhaps the next five to fifteen years, and I think it'll be sooner than fifteen, but that's my strong opinion. Over those years, you're going to see leaders arise in Europe quite different from the leaders we have had of recent day. And we'll feed that those men have a gleam in their eye and they're going for it. They're going to become more like Adolf Hitler. And they're going to be mean men, very clever men, conspiring men rise up in Germany and Italy and Spain and some of those very heavily Roman Catholic dominated countries. And they will begin to get together in a much more powerful way than they have thus far. And when that happens, I hope all of you and I hope you brethren in Britain really are watching right across the channel and all of you around the world can grasp that and pray all the harder when you see those things happening. And when you see the drought getting worse and worse, yes, ups and downs. What about the American dollar? It's been going down. Right now it's going up a little bit. You say, oh, it's all over. No, it's not over. It's going to go like this, just like I've said. But generally, the direction will be down. And as you see the American power and prestige going down, as you see our national power going down, as you see these nations getting more powerful in Europe, as you see greater drought, you know, a little alternating range, yes, but the general situation getting worse and worse. But these demons are influencing things, and they're going to guide things. And if you see these wicked men arise, I'm sure you'll begin to realize uh, we're nearing the end of this age and we've got to be aware of our fight, our spiritual battle. Turn now, if you would, to Second Chronicles. Turn to Second Chronicles and let's turn back to chapter 18 at this point. Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles, chapter 18, beginning in verse... Uh, 18, 18, verse 18, this prophet said, talking about an immediate prophetic thing that was going to happen, he said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw, and God put this in His inspired word to help us realize the unseen spirit world. I saw the eternal Yahweh sitting on the throne, 
and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the eternal said, Who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? God had wanted Ahab to be punished and to be killed. And no one spoke. And one spoke in one manner, and another in another. Then a spirit, say a demon spirit, comes forward and stood before the eternal. And God allows that. Here's a heavenly conference. And God describes it in His Word. He doesn't say this is all wrong. He shows it in the context of truth. And He says, I'll persuade him. And the Eternal said, in what way? He said, I'll go forth and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all His prophets. Say, to make this pagan king, this king of Israel who was wicked, do the wrong thing. And the Eternal said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Now therefore, look, The Eternal has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Eternal has declared disaster against you, he tells Ahab. Yes, God Almighty allows demons to do things. He allowed Satan the devil without me turning to it to afflict Job. You remember that? He said, you can go this far and no further. And so the demon or the devil struck Job in this way and then that way and another way but was not able to take his life. And finally, his own wife got bitter. She said, Curse God and die, Job. You're self-righteous. And Job said, No. No, he said, That's not right. I won't do that. And even though he did sometimes say, My righteousness I maintain, he was a very good man overall as a human being. He didn't yet realize how weak he was. And God wanted him to realize that before he gave him the true power as a God being in the family of God. And so he brought him down and brought him down until he cried out. And he said, I am nothing, nothing but dust and ashes. Please forgive me and help me to realize who I am. And then God blessed him and gave him back double after he learned that tremendous lesson. But at any rate, there are these spirit wars going on and there are these spirit conferences going on, perhaps even in heaven, that we don't know about right now. But God wants us to see that these things are occurring. And brethren... Even now, God may be postponing right now the worst of the pre-tribulation tragedies, the terrible real drought, the lack of food, our children starving all over this nation, and the raging disease epidemics and the massive earthquakes to shake some of our major cities. He may be postponing it even now in His mercy so that there are enough good people, perhaps in this city, and other cities that are sincere, you know, they're not, they're not bad people, all of them. A lot of them go, they fill the church uh, parking lots, you know, tomorrow. They mean well. They're not bad. I grew up in the pagan church, but the, the church was very sincere. And they mean well. And there may be enough decent people like that, like God told uh, Abraham, if they're just one out of ten, finally, then I'll spare the city. But he couldn't even find one good man there, or ten men, I should say, in the whole city of Sodom before he went to destroy it. But God has more than ten righteous men, perhaps in the United States, even apart from the church. Many people are still reasonably decent. And He wants this work. He may be giving us more time to do this job to get our Internet going much more powerfully, to get the living university really going because the colleges of this world are absolutely turning away from God and most of you read these terrible things they're doing and how they're anti-God and anti-Christ and everything. And the more intellectual they are, the higher up in the scheme of educational prestige, the worse they are, frankly. 
I won't quote, I'll maybe have a whole sermon, maybe you don't read that stuff, but I do. But God's allowing the decent people to have some more time to learn and to grow and the work of God time to go on and to reach people before it's too late. And giving us that opportunity, then He'll intervene. And so He's, then He will allow more wicked leaders to arise in the United States. Some of our next wave of leaders may really be liberal, far beyond anything President Bush or even Clinton have done in the past and in America and in, I mean, in, in England and Europe. And over in Europe, people allow these men to rise who would be absolute Hitlers. Then, when we see that, we'll know the end is indeed very near. So he's giving us a window of opportunity for a few more years to finish the work. Some of you may occasionally smirk when we talk about prophecy. A lot of young people do that. They'll say, well, you've been talking about the five years or ten years. Yes. Out of a period of 6,000 years, we're still very close to the time of the end, as God looks at it. Very close. And certainly time is coming to an end within the lifetimes of a lot of you younger people, and perhaps many of us older people will even be here to see Christ's feet come right to this earth. I hope we will. Back in Second Timothy, if you turn there with me to Second, uh, I mean Second Thessalonians at this point, Second Thessalonians, we find this remarkable passage again we're familiar with, chapter two, verse one, Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verse one. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, so he's talking about Christ's second coming. And our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter. See, some were circulating a false rumor in Paul's name or false letters claiming to be from Paul, which were not from Paul, as if the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. He said it's not going to come right away unless the falling away. The Greek word is apostasia. And there was a great falling away that took place then. But frankly, there was to be the rest of the Bible. And this does by implication talk about the great falling away again in two stages at the time of the end. The second stage is now. The falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So he sits as God in the temple of God. We know one man who sits like that in a temple. He calls the temple of God or the church of God. And, of course, he acts like he is God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember how I told you things in person? Kind of interesting. He said, I explained this to you in person, folks. What did he tell them in person? He doesn't put here. We don't know, but he warned them personally about it. And now you know what is restraining. Something's holding this guy back that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness. And my brethren, again, don't let it be a mystery to you. I've studied and meditated about this for, whatever, 57 years since I was baptized. And I sincerely, deeply feel, as Mr. Armstrong did, it's not talking about some general term. Lawlessness in the New Testament or the Old is talking about God's law. Not talking about a general attitude of breakdown of society in general or traffic laws. It's talking about God's law. This great false teacher began to turn people away from the fear of God and the realization that anyone calling himself a Christian must keep the Ten Commandments. 
That began to happen way back in the time of Simon Magus. Way back when Peter and Paul were still alive. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That attitude of turning people away from God's law. Only he who now restrains will, frankly that might have been Paul himself, until he's taken out of the way or revealed out of the midst, as it may be translated. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And of course the type of that may have been Simon Magus and some of the immediate Roman popes coming up, whom the Lord will consume, the final one in that office, whoever he may be, the Lord Christ will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming at the second coming of Christ. The coming of the lawless one, notice, is according to the working of Satan. Now, I'm talking here about the working of Satan. And again, you know that. Satan is behind the scenes. He's doing things. He's guiding things. The working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So Satan himself will be given the opportunity to do all kinds of miracles. They're not just going to be magical tricks with mirrors, you know, and stuff like that. He will be able to intervene to a limited degree within God's will in this earth's atmosphere. As it says in Revelation 13, verse 13, two thirteens, this coming man of sin will bring down fire from heaven. God does not indicate it's a magic trick. It will be a real thing. God will allow that man to do that, to bring down fire from heaven. Revelation 13, verse 13. So he's going to have real miracles. But again, brethren, the Bible is the revelation of the mind of God. And whenever you see that Satan's ministers or instruments are allowed to perform miracles, every time you see that God's true ministers, whether in the time of Moses and Aaron and the miracles they performed, or Elijah or Elisha or Christ or the apostles, Christ's true ministers can also perform miracles of equal and generally greater power. So at that time, whoever God's ministers are, I may not be here, I hope I will be, but whoever is carrying on this work, if we're carrying it on the right way, and I don't mean perfectly, no one's ever done it perfectly. I think most of you older people live long enough, you know, if you keep waiting for someone perfect, you're going to wait till Christ comes back. And that's good to wait till Christ comes back, but none of us have been perfect in the meantime or ever will be. But we're going to do the work with all of our hearts and preach the truth as perfectly as we can. And they will be given power. We will be given power, increasing power, as we walk with God more closely. So the coming of Satan is according to power. These men, the, uh, 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 the lawless one, is according to the working power of Satan with all kinds of lying miracles and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. You see, they're going to be deceived by these things among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That's kind of an interesting expression. You know, when I came to church, as I said years ago, we talked about when did you come into the truth, not just the church. And you have to appreciate the truth. Where is the truth? And who is preaching the truth more fully and more closely? That is a big issue with God. Not just where are there nice people, not where there are nice summer camps, not where they have nice dances, not where they have sweet people or whatever. Where is the truth? Where is it? Preach more fully. And where is the work of God being done more powerfully and more fully? That's what God wants all of us to, to obviously look for. So you do want to understand 
and grasp the importance of those things. Now, let's go to Mark, if you would, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9 at this point. And uh, here is, of course, something, again, I've often used, but don't apologize for it. In verse 17, a man came, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And he seizes him, throws him down, his mouth foams, his, he becomes rigid, gnashes his teeth. So your disciples couldn't cast him out. And he answered, Oh, faithless generation! Jesus often wondered, Why can't they just be really believe God? Oh, faithless generation! How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And when he came, the Spirit convulsed this young man, and he fell on the ground, wallowing and foaming, and his father, uh, Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening? And he said, From childhood... Often he's thrown them both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Satan wants to tear down. Satan wants to destroy. He never wants to build up. He will try to get you into an attitude of doubt or cynicism or sarcasm or bitterness against someone else in the church or the ministry or something you don't like just to disorient you. It doesn't make any difference what the method is. If he can get you in some way, he will get you. And that then will destroy another potential God who is going to help replace him and his demons. That's frankly his purpose in all of this when you understand it. So he always tries to hurt and to tear down. If you can do anything, help us. And Jesus said, verse 23, If you can believe, learn to put your faith and trust in God. All things are possible to him who believes. And then the father was very honest. He was overcome by emotion. And he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> you know, I want to believe. I do partly believe. But I know I don't believe fully. He's probably indicating, help me. Help me to have complete faith. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. There are demon spirits involved in some of these things saying, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him, enter no more into him. And then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out, and he became as one dead. He went into kind of a coma and just kind of froze there and, and you know, uh, stiff. So that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and he rose up. And when he'd come into the house, that is Jesus, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus said, This kind could come out by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. And my brethren, as you fight Satan, as you fight spiritual wars, I hope you can all understand the lessons in all of this. We have got to learn to do those things in order to conquer Satan, to really fast and to pray and be aware of how you need to fight this spirit battle. Then, obviously, as you pray and as you study, I'd like you to remember and concentrate on one thing especially. You need to have deep humility, deep humility, and the fear of God. If you get to thinking you're a great one, that's one of the quickest ways Satan can get at you. I can take care of myself. I don't need to hear about this and so on. Then you're in trouble. Or I don't need to listen to this. And you have to have the fear of God. I'm not talking about the, you know, a God is a monster, but the deep awe 
And every now and then, I get overconfident and I realize I'm not mine. And I just ask God in prayer, God, please help me to have more of the fear of God. Just the awe that He really is there and how weak we are. How weak we are and how we could just be gone in, this, in the next second, actually. And I'm not exaggerating. You know that. Any of us who are older, God could let us have a heart attack in two seconds, starting, you know, like that. <laughs> it doesn't take God very much trouble to some old person or a young person either. You young kids, you think nothing could happen to me. You could drive right out of the driveway and somehow some young kid or something had too many drugs and he smacks into your car and you're gone. Your life is over and they have the funeral service for you. We all know those things. It's good to realize it though and realize how much we need our Father in heaven and to have deep humility and the fear of God and the awe of God and learn to be seeking God. In 1 Corinthians 10, brethren, 1 Corinthians 10, we find some instruction here about all of this. He describes how in ancient Israel, Christ was the rock. And he said in verse 6, Now all these things, some of them died out in the desert, he says, all these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And you know what ancient Israel did, how often they turned aside. And do not become idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and, and drink and rose up to play. Now, nor let us commit sexual immorality or fornication, as the King James has it, as some of them did. And one day, 23,000 people fell. 23,000! They had their woodstock. A big love-in. They always love each other, so what? God doesn't care. Yes, He does care. You abuse that and God is not pleased at all. So God struck them down. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents as they turned away in various ways. Nor murmur, well, we don't like Moses and we don't like Aaron and they're not perfect and blah, blah, blah. And they went on with their mouth against God's servants. And so they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They're for us today. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We've got to really feel that way. Even though we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with the temptation always make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. He will always make a way out. You're not going to be tempted beyond your power. That's why I say that's a bunch of baloney that the, uh, as you know, the, for instance, the uh, queers, the homosexuals are born that way. They're not born that way. Some people are born with the tendency, the way their blood sugar is handled, that they like more liquor and they tend to be alcoholics in certain families more than others. Some tend to be fat more than others. Some tend to lose their, their pimper more than others. It kind of runs in the family. Some have this tendency or that tendency. Are you born to be a child molester? No. Are you born to be a homosexual? No. Could some have a tendency perhaps because of their background and their genes and maybe even their family to be likely tempted in that direction more than others? Yes. But do they have to be that way? No. And even if they get in it, can they come out through the Spirit of Christ and the power of God and His Spirit in them? Yes. They can come out. 
And Paul said, such were some of you in 1 Corinthians 6 when he described the church of God at Corinth. So we need to understand that. No one's born to be anything like that. And God will provide a way to escape. And that's very important. And so he says here in verse 18, drop down to verse 18, Observe Israel after the flesh, or not those who eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... Why very beautiful they think idols of these pagan, you know, gods. I've seen them in, you know, various parts of the world. And some of them are attractive in a certain way, I guess, covered with gold and one thing and the other. My wife and I even saw some in China. Very impressive. But that doesn't make it good. So are the things, uh, I say the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. That's what your New Testament says. These things, these Gentile sacrifice and worship other than that of the true God, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be fellowshipping with demons. Can you fellowship with demons? Yes. This is indicated very clearly. And you could go into some false church and it seems all right. I mean, no one's in there, you know, just could Satan come at you with a, a mask and, and horn, I am the devil and I'm here to deceive you. No, he doesn't do that. He comes with beautiful music and rituals that it looks so pretty. Did it look so pretty out under the beautiful Mediterranean sky up on this block that they had there at Corinth? Yes, I was in Corinth. And boy, they had this, I forget what they call it, but it's a, just like that. They Over the centuries, they carved it out. And it goes straight up about 50 yards and up on top under the Mediterranean sky. They had their sex orgies out in this beautiful weather right there near the Mediterranean Sea. Very exciting. Isn't that nice? No. No, it's not nice. They had their pagan idols and they said this is all right because it's part of your religion, but it's not all right with God. He destroyed that civilization. He destroyed the Roman civilization. He destroyed the Babylonian civilization. And he's going to destroy the American civilization. We're going down and down and out. Unless we repent and turn back to the God of the Bible. I don't mean any God, but the God of the Bible. And God help us to get together and warn our fellow Americans and our fellow Britons whom we love so they can understand and wake up and come out of that if they're willing to. So we have to realize that this is what has been done down through time and people must not worship demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons if you go into some false church and take of their Passover or their Lord's Supper. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. He says demons again. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy or are we stronger than He? No, we've got to stay away from false churches and false religion. Because Satan, the devil, is behind them. So please understand, brethren, it's a very, very important concept. And we've got to come clear out of it. We must come out of false religious practices. We've got to come completely away from horoscopes and palm readings. They seem innocent, but they're tied in with Satan, frankly, when you understand it. And we've got to quit sinning. A lot of people in the church, they want to sin just a little bit. What if I sin just a little bit? You know, I can neck and, and feel this girl up as I say, that's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal with God. You don't sin just a little bit. You sin against God. You're not to look on a woman to lust after her at all, God says. 
You're not to get drunk just a little bit. You're not to steal God's tithe just a little bit. Yet many in God's church do that. They just do that regularly as a way of life. They don't pay a full tithe. And they're stealing from God. And, of course, all the other things that we do. You can have rebellion against the church and talk against the ministry just a little bit. Is God pleased with that? Look again at the examples in the Old Testament, in the Word of God, the written Word of God, the mind of God in print. So we want to understand. Turn back to 1 Peter now, brethren. 1 Peter, and let's turn to chapter 5 and the wind-up of this wonderful book from the leading apostle to the Jews of that time. And this part is written to elders primarily, but frankly to all of us. We're all going to be kings and priests in a few years if we overcome as we should. Likewise, you younger people, he's now getting rid of everyone here anyway. Submit yourselves to your elders. Young people have respect more than you do for older people. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Or Satan can get at you so quickly if you have that attitude. I'm okay and don't need to worry about this spirit war and all this stuff. Yes, you do need to worry about it. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And that's what I've got to do. That's what you've got to do. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God is our Father. God is our Maker. In Him we live and move and have our being. We could do nothing apart from God. Humble yourselves in His sight. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober. That means not just to not drink. It means to be alert, to be thoughtful, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, the devil is your enemy, a spirit being, the prince of the power of this earth's atmosphere walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's after us, after us. Resist him. You've got to do that, brethren. You can't resist the devil unless you believe he's there. You can't resist the devil unless it becomes very real to you. The whole idea of a spirit world, demon spirits, Satan trying to get at you, Satan taking over our society, just blatting out and broadcasting these attitudes on television and the Internet and all these other avenues, motion pictures of sex, free sex, loose sex, murder, violence, rebellion, smarlick attitudes against their parents. Over and over and over the kids see that. No wonder it has an effect upon the whole younger generation. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us into, as I've explained, the Greek word is ice, into, not just up to the foot of the mountain. God has called us into to share in His eternal glory. We're going to be made sons of God in God's kingdom, God's level of existence. He's called us into His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. When? When? After you have suffered a while. We do have to go through trials and tests, and God makes that plain. After you have suffered a while, you cry out to God, you fast, you study. And brethren, you need to know all these things, the basic things. You need to study the Bible regularly to feed on Christ. You need to meditate on the Bible. Take time, brethren, please, to think over carefully what you're studying. And then apart from your study, perhaps every Sabbath or someday on the weekend or when you have time, just sit down, you know, how am I doing? Where am I still weak? 
Where am I making mistakes? How far have I come since the last Passover? How far have I come in the last year, let's say? What do I need to work on? How could Satan get at me? What wrong attitudes do I still have? What weaknesses do I still have? Meditate on these things. Meditate on the Word of God. Study, meditate, and and then pray to God with all your heart. And as Mr. Armstrong said, one of the greatest weaknesses of God's people in prayer is that they don't put their hearts in their prayers. And I too have found when I really get exercised about it and just cry out to God with my heart, He does heal a lot more. He does intervene a lot more. He does bless a lot more. So put your heart in your prayer and then fast. Use the tool of fasting to draw close to God and away from the world and away from Satan. And then fifthly, of course, exercise the Spirit, which means walk with God, walk by faith, day by day and hour by hour. So after you have suffered a while, may God perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brethren, we are in a spirit battle. Understand that and prepare for that battle. And with the help of God, be sure that each of you, each of us, wins that battle.